Father in heaven, thank you so much for seeing us through another a week and keeping all of us safe and that it is now the Sabbath hours. Thank you, Lord, for this holy time. And I just pray that you would please baptize us with your Holy Spirit now. Anoint my lips with your words. Give us, Lord, deep understanding into the scriptures. May you lead us and guide us with your spirit now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon this morning is entitled, The Three Elijahs. The Three Elijahs. Now, let's start by going to our first text found in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The Bible here, and in particular, in the book of Malachi, we are told that God, he would send Elijah just before the coming of what? The great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is Malachi was written around 400 BC. And that was actually many years after the appearance of the literal Elijah. We're told that Elijah, the person back in the Old Testament there, appeared at around 910 BC. So by the time that Malachi was written, Elijah, the prophet, the literal prophet that we're talking about, had already appeared. And so this, this prophecy cannot be referring to the past where Elijah came and he called fire down from heaven and, you know, there was no rain for three and a half years. You're familiar with that story? We're told here that Elijah would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Who was this Elijah referring to? And so as we look at these the slide here, we know that the first Elijah, as you know, the title of the sermon is Three Elijahs. The first Elijah is the literal Elijah. He's the one that came during the time of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And he worked a great reform and he set up the schools of the prophets. This first Elijah did a great work, but yet Malachi is not referring to that first Elijah. Now, of course, I'm making the conclusion based upon the title of my sermon is that there are three Elijahs. The first Elijah was that literal Elijah. How about the second Elijah? All right, the second Elijah. Well, who is this referring to? Well, this is found partially fulfilled. Malachi is partially fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist. Why do I say that? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 1 and verse 13. This is the events surrounding the birth of John. The angel said unto him, Fear not Zacharias. Now, who is Zacharias? He is the father of John the Baptist. For thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And of course, 
the, 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 the name John the Baptist is not his full name. The Baptist, I guess, was the cliche of what was given to him because he baptized people. Baptism really started with him there. And so his name would be John. This is John the Baptist. And look at what it says in verse 17. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make a ready and make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So you see that word Elias there is Elijah. So John the Baptist would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and he would turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And then notice what it said there to make a people prepared for the Lord. So this text was taken from Malachi. It was quoted, John, when he wrote this, he was quoting from Malachi. Pardon me, not John, Luke, right? So he was quoting from Malachi. And so John the Baptist, he was what we call the second Elijah, okay? He would come to make a people prepared for the Lord the first coming of the Lord. And so Malachi is partially fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist. Malachi was not referring to the literal John the Baptist. He was referring to someone in the future. And that was only partially, as we know from the sermon title, there's a third Elijah coming. It, he was only fulfilling part of the text. Let me give you some more evidence, if this is news to you, that John the Baptist, he is the second Elijah. Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 to 14. Look at what the Bible says here. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. So Jesus doesn't even say he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He said this is Elijah, which was prophesied to come. So it's very clear we have the stamp of approval from Jesus himself that John the Baptist is, quote-unquote, the second Elijah. This was Elijah that was to come. Let's keep reading. Matthew 17, verse 10 to 13. And the disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias, Elijah, must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake of who? Unto them of John the Baptist. So, we know that John the Baptist, he is the second Elijah. He is the one that partially fulfilled that prophecy in that last verse of Malachi, that very last verse of the Old Testament. And we say this is partially fulfilled 
And we know that definitely he came as Elijah because Jesus said so, but it was a partial fulfillment because Malachi said that Elijah would come just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, let's keep reading a little bit more about John the Baptist. This is very interesting. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Esaias, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Do you see that? Make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. You know, friends, there's very something very interesting that we learn about John the Baptist and his life. He had a very simple lifestyle. His dress was a rebuke to those who lived fashionably in those days. He also even had a very simple diet. It's a diet that I don't think many of us would, would subscribe to today and prescribe to today. You know, he, he ate locusts and wild honey, but it was a very simple diet, simple lifestyle, simple dress. So these are just little things that we learn about John the Baptist. But furthermore, it says here, Matthew 11 verse 8, But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. And so friends, we see here that John the Baptist, he lived a very simple lifestyle. A very simple lifestyle. And you know, if we are to be like Elijah, like John the Baptist, you know, even Elijah in the Old Testament that we'll look at in the coming weeks as we study together, he also lived a very simple lifestyle. So we see very clearly that John the Baptist, he is the second Elijah. And you know, even what he did, it paralleled many things to what literal Elijah did in the Old Testament. Let's have a look at Elijah really quickly, okay? What did he do in the Old Testament? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 to 31, this is the background to which Elijah would rise up. In verse 30, the Bible says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Ahab, he was the king of Israel. Israel was meant to be God's people, but he went and served Baal. It's as if he totally changed the religion. He walked in the sins of all those that had come before him. He married a woman who was not even a Christian, was not even of God's people. And as a result, he bowed down to idols. He served Baal. He worshipped him. And so as a result, in 1 Kings 17 verse 1, we see this sudden introduction of Elijah and he stands before King Ahab and he rebukes him. And he says, according to my word, there's going to be no rain. Because of this idol worship, because of this, 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 this alliance that you've made with Jezebel, 
there's not going to be any rain until I say so. And you know what's very interesting? John the Baptist. What do we see him do when he was alive? And this, actually, this very act caused him to be locked up and eventually killed. But what did John the Baptist do whilst he was alive? Well, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Matthew 14, 1 through 5, And at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. So at this time, John the Baptist was already dead. Jesus comes along, and Herod thought that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected. Why? What happened to John? For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John had said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Friends, what had happened? You see, Herod had taken to wife this lady by the name of Herodias. And this woman was the wife of his brother, Philip. And so John the Baptist stood up and rebuked him for the fornication that was taking place, this union that this this king was having that was not lawful and that was not good. John the Baptist rebukes Herod for taking to wife his brother's wife. And so, look, both kings were were rebuked by, quote-unquote, Elijah's. The literal Elijah rebuked King Ahab. John the Baptist rebuked Herod. And you know what's very interesting? What happens at the end of time? Revelation 14, 8, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, because uh, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. There is some sort of fornication taking place. Everybody's committing it. But what is happening? In Revelation 17, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore, that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. You see, at the end of time, friends, the kings of the earth will commit fornication with everybody on the earth. Something to do with the drinking of the wine of fornication. And God's people must stand up at the end of time to rebuke this type of fornication, to rebuke this alliance between these two groups of people which God had not blessed. Elijah in the Old Testament rebuked this alliance that Ahab had formed with Jezebel. John the Baptist rebuked Herod who married Herodias, the brother's wife. And at the end of time, God's people would stand up to rebuke fornication that's taking place. We see this parallel. But who is God's people? Who are those that would stand up to to prepare the coming of the Lord? Who would stand up and be counted as the third Elijah? Well, just before we go there, I want to confirm very clearly 
the understanding of what we've been looking at about John the Baptist being the third Elijah. I want to read to you from Temperance 91, paragraph 2, written by Ellen White. She says, The work of John was foretold by Malachi the prophet. And then she goes and quotes Malachi 4, 5, and 6, which is exactly what we read at the very beginning. And then after that, it says, John the Baptist went forth in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord and to turn the people to the wisdom of the just. He was a representative of those living in the last days to whom God has entrusted sacred truths to present before the people and to prepare the way for the second appearing of Christ. And the same principles of temperance which John practiced should be observed by those in our day who are to warn the world of the coming of the Son of Man. Friends, do you see very clearly that even then we must have that simple lifestyle, simple diet, simple dress. We got to be temperate in all things as well. But who is that person, that group that will prepare the people for the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Who is this third Elijah? We know the first is the literal Elijah. We already know the second, that's John the Baptist. But who is this third? We know it is in the future. Why? Because the Bible said that he would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And we know that the first coming of Jesus was not the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That was a great and glorious day. It wasn't a great and dreadful day. So John the Baptist came and it was partially fulfilled. But what we need to look at here is the great and dreadful day of the Lord. When is the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Because if we can pinpoint that and understand when that would be, then we can understand who is the third Elijah. So when is this great and dreadful day of the Lord, friends? Let's read in Revelation chapter 6. And it's a pretty long passage, but stick with me. This is what we call the sixth seal. Revelation 6, starting in verse 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from him, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand. Do you see that, friends? The great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? There's a lot that seems like is going on here. And Why is it that I read this whole passage? Because you see, we see at the near the beginning, in that first slide, when the heaven departed together as a scroll, we know that to be the second coming. 
All theologians out there have no doubt that that verse, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 14, is referring to the second coming. But at the very end it says, the great day of His wrath is come. That sounds like a great and dreadful day to me. How about you, friends? That doesn't sound like a good day to me. And that is taking place just before the second coming of Jesus. We know this wrath of God in Revelation 15 and 16 to be the seven last plagues. And so that's why it's a dreadful day, because just before Jesus comes, there's going to be a lot of trouble. There's going to be a lot of tribulation. There's going to be a lot of persecution. There's going to be a lot of fighting. There's going to be a lot of dreadful events happening just before the glorious day comes. And yes, the seven last plagues is a dreadful time because God is punishing the wicked people at that time. It's a dreadful time. It's not an enjoyable time. And so that's why God's day is, in in, in a sense, the second coming is mixed up with the events just before that preceded, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, let's dig a bit deeper. Joel chapter 2 verse 31, look at this. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what we read in Revelation chapter 6 earlier. So the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Do you see that, friends? The great and terrible day sounds very similar to great and dreadful day. And when you look at these events in order, the sun going black, the moon turning blood, and in Revelation 6, the stars falling to heaven, well, the sun, it went black and the moon turned to blood. It, back in May 19, 1780, May 19, 1780, almost 1800 years after the birth of Christ and His death and His resurrection. And so we know that if that is the case, then the third Elijah must arise sometime during this time. And I know what you're thinking. You know what denomination I'm at. But friends, I'm going through the Bible to prove to you and to show you even timing of when this third Elijah would arise. Let's keep going. Jude chapter 1 verse 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, He, God, has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. You see, friends, God's great day somehow coincides with the day of judgment, when God would begin to judge everybody. And if you study Daniel, you know what that date is, when judgment would begin, when the cleansing of the sanctuary would take place, when the subjects of God's kingdom would begin to be determined around 1844. And if judgment begins around that time, and that is God's great day, then somehow the third Elijah must arise around that time. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Revelation 16, verse 12 to 15. This is the seven last plagues. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. 
And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. Do you see that, friends? The great day of God Almighty. And then look at what it says after this. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Somehow we see here that the great day of God Almighty that is taking place near the time of the sixth plague, which is in the future for us, we know that that is somehow connected with Jesus coming as a thief, right? We see that. These two are very much connected. But when does Jesus come as a thief? Let's have a look. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. That sounds like a pretty dreadful day, doesn't it? The great and dreadful day is definitely like the day of the Lord, where Jesus comes as a thief. Well, what is that? Matthew chapter 24, verses 43 and 44. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Friends, this is the second coming the second coming of Jesus. That is the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That is when he will come as a thief, not secret rapture, but when it will be unexpected, a time in which many people are not expecting him. And so friends, there will exist another Elijah that would come up, that would arise up to proclaim the time in which God would come, pardon me, that would work in the time that is just before His second coming, for no man knows the day or the hour, but He would rise up to do a work of reform similar to that of which Elijah did in his day, similar to that which John the Baptist did in his day, and which is a work that must be done in our day as well. Friends, who is this third Elijah? Who is it? Well, in the book, The Faith I Live By, 290, paragraph 5, this is what we are told. In this time of well-nigh universal apostasy, speaking of our day, God calls upon his messengers to proclaim his law in the spirit and power of Elias. As John the Baptist in preparing a people for Christ's first advent, called their attention to the Ten Commandments. So we are to give with no uncertain sound the message, fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. With earnestness that characterized Elijah the prophet and John the Baptist, we are to strive to prepare the way for Christ's second advent. Friends, 
Who is this third Elijah that would rise up and give the message a certain sound, that would preach the gospel of fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come? Friends, there is only one denomination out there today that is preaching this gospel message, that is taking it to the ends of the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. My dear brothers and sisters, it is none other than the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And friends, I don't say this with a lot of pride, just because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist minister. Just because I seem to pastor and am in the church, it doesn't mean that I'm saved. I'm not saying this with a lot of pride because, ha ha, I am and you're not. Friends, the question is whether we are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Just because we are in the Seventh-day Adventist church, just because we are proclaiming this message doesn't mean that we are saved. Just because we are part of this third Elijah movement, the Seventh-day Adventist church movement, doesn't mean that everybody in this church is saved, not necessarily. God identified a movement. Just as He identified where Jesus would come up and where He would be born into God's chosen people at that time 2,000 years ago, does it mean that every Israelite was saved? Absolutely not. Does it mean that every Jew was saved? No. Why? Because many rejected Him. Friends, we can be in the church and be lost. We can be going to church every week and still not be part of the Elijah movement, even though we're sitting right there. We're not living this lifestyle. We're not dressing the way that Elijah should dress. Not weird, but simple. We're not being extravagant, right? But many aren't. We don't even have the health reform message that Elijah did and John the Baptist did. Just because we are part of the Seventh-day Adventist church, it doesn't mean that you're going to be saved, friends. Are you proclaiming the message? What is our responsibility in these days? Why did God call a movement out to, 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 to hasten His coming in these days? Why? Just to, oh, you're, you're Seventh-day Adventist, you must be saved. Not necessarily. You see, friends, there is a work to be done. Just as Elijah had a work of reform to do, just as John the Baptist had a work of reform to do, and as he preached the, the message of repentance, thousands came to him and were baptized, preparing the way of Jesus Christ. And if we are to prepare the way for Jesus Christ for the second time, what are we to do? What is our responsibility? Well, in Matthew 24, verse 14, I'm sorry, I don't have the slide here, but in Matthew 24, verse 14, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. Friends, we got to preach the gospel to the whole world. Only then Jesus can come for a second time, right? That is our work. And let me show you from Lift Him Up 357, paragraph 2. Look at this. In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light-bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import. 
the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Nothing else must take our attention away from that one thing, that one aim that God has given to us the proclamation of the everlasting gospel that must go to all the earth, found in Revelation chapter 14, the first, second, and third angels' messages. Friends, that is what God's people must be doing at the end of time, and nothing else must absorb our attention. But sadly, many of us go to church And we just simply go to church because we feel it a duty, because it's become habit, because that's what Christians should do. But we are not absorbed by that one thing. We are not thick with Christ. We are not yoked up with Him. We are not connected to the true vine. We do not have His heart. We do not have His life. We do not have His desires. We do not have His passions. We do not have His burdens to finish the work, friends. And maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not a minister. I'm not a Bible worker. I'm not employed by the church. But friends, that quote was not talking about those that were employed by the church. It was talking about every single Seventh-day Adventist. Every person within the church. This must be our aim. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not working in the church. You don't have to be, friends. Even though you work out doing accounting, even though you're doing something else, friends, you must allow nothing else to absorb your attention. Not your relationships, not your studies, not your friends, not your career, not your money. Jesus Christ must be first. The only reason why you're working a job is because you've got to support yourself, but that's not what God called you to. Are you with me? We must allow nothing else to absorb our attention. So friends, what is taking your time today? What is eating up the time that belongs to Jesus today? Are you part of the third Elijah movement? Or are rocks going to start crying out? Is God going to turn away from people within the church because He can't work with them there? The movement will move on, but many people will be put aside just as God put aside ancient Israel to start working through the churches, the Gentiles, people like you and me who aren't Jewish at all and don't even have a hint of Jewish blood in them. Friends, are you part of the Third Elijah movement? It's not just about being part of it to be saved, but God has given this Third Elijah a very, very special work just like Elijah of old, just like John the Baptist of old. It wasn't about, oh God, you've called me to be saved. No, God, you're calling me to do a special work. What is that special work? To finish the work here on this earth. Yes, friends, it needs to be wrapped up. It needs to be closed up. We're living in the time of universal apostasy, that even the world has crept into the church. It's time now more than ever to give the gospel message a certain sound. I pray that you and me would be found doing that in these last days. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, Lord, please, please forgive us if we, we have misunderstood our calling. We've misunderstood what it means to be a Christian. Please forgive us, Lord. Help us to be like Jesus. Lead and guide us, O Father, and please bless us that you might call us out of darkness even now, that even though we might have been in church for so long, Lord, we've not been part of the Elijah movement. We've been too content to just sit there and do nothing. Lord, please forgive us. Help us to see that if we are to be saved at last, you're calling us into service. You're calling us to save others. You're calling us to, to give the message a certain sound to, to spread to the utter ends of the earth. Help us, Father, that we might be your witnesses today. So please, Lord, fill us with your spirit again. Empower us, for we can do nothing without you. And so, Father, we just surrender our lives again to you this day. Guide and lead and bless us is my earnest plea and prayer. For I pray in Jesus' name, Amen.